All right, our reading today is from Mark chapter six. If you would like, there are black Bibles in the pews or in the rows, and you can turn to page 817 with me. The reading this morning is from Mark chapter six, starting at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Hey, good morning. Once again, it is really good to see you. If this is your first time, we're so glad that you're at Trinity and I look forward to meeting you and getting to know you. Uh, now, last weekend, I was not here. Uh, so coming back after a weekend off for me, I only take a few Sundays off a year, but I come back like ready to sing, ready to see you all, ready to pray, ready to teach. Uh, but last weekend, my son Jude and I were in California. So for each of our three boys, I do a father-son trip when they turn 10. And Jude chose uh, Yosemite National Park, which is phenomenal. So that's where we were last weekend. But, you know, in taking the flights to and from San Francisco, you're, you're stuck in those tiny little chairs and you can choose from like, what, 20 movies or something like that. And like 19 of the movies are trash. And then there's a boxing movie. So like automatically, <laughs> I'm going for the boxing movie. I've talked about this before, but I just love boxing movies. I think I've seen almost all of the boxing movies, and there's like, there's a lot of them. And I, I'm not alone in this, but, but it's always interesting because I'm, I'm actually not into boxing at all. Like I don't watch boxing live. I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't name a boxer right now that's like still actively fighting. Uh, and this is common as well. So boxing is like the, I don't know, 15th most popular sport in America, right? And yet there are probably more boxing movies than all other sports movies combined. You ever thought about that? Now, you might be asking, well, why is that the case? Why are we as a people so drawn to boxing movies? And so here's what the research says. They're super inexpensive, right? No, no car chases, no explosions. I mean, how many actors do you need? Like two, right? 
maybe three or four, but they're very inexpensive. Um, and then you can write the script in probably like a week, right? Because every plot is the same, you know? I mean, it's a boxing movie. So that doesn't take much time. It doesn't take much effort. But I think on a deeper level, we as a culture, as a people, we identify with boxing movies on a really deep level. Like we identify with, with the struggle of the boxer. We identify with his, his opponents. He's, a, he's an underdog. Nobody believes in him, right? We identify with the, the crisis of identity. Who am I if I'm not a boxer? Who am I if I lose? And, and we can get into it and we can live vicariously cheering him on as he's doing, you know, the training scene where there's the hype music and he's got the gray hoodie and he's like, I've never sweat through a hoodie before, but if you're sweating through a hoodie, you're going to win the fight. And so we live vicariously through these guys. And I wonder, you know, well, first of all, do these boxing movies, do they reveal something about our culture that we might have a suppressed anger problem, perhaps, if we are watching this many boxing movies? Certainly that's not me. I just like watching them. Um, but what does it say about us as a people that we love these things so much? And I think it's that we, we long on a really deep level for somebody to fight for us, for somebody to, to go ahead of us, to, to knock out our enemies, to, to set us free from whatever it is that is, that is oppressing us on whatever level it is. And, and in our own culture, we're, we're probably not being oppressed the way lots of people are in all sorts of countries around the world. And yet we as a people still can have a, a sort of yawning frustration or, or despair that, that this is all life is, that, that sh certainly there should be more. It's, it's this sort of like screaming into the void of, tell me there's more to this life than what I'm experiencing because what I'm experiencing feels like being trapped or mistreated or overlooked or oppressed. If only someone could come and fight for me. Now, we're not the only culture that does this. If you study literature, in fact, every culture has their own form of hero narrative, right? And you can think about Greek mythology or Shakespeare as well as Rocky Balboa. Really similar things. We are longing for a great hero to come and set us free. Now, you just heard the reading of the text this morning. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And so it might seem a little bit odd that I would go with the boxing theme for the intro because the feeding of the 5,000, you're like, it's green pastures, it's a seaside picnic, you know, there's food and, and fish. I mean, this is just a nice, quaint picnic. And, and there's a little bit of, of truth in that, and yet I think there's a context that, that is actually showing us that something very different was going on in this moment. There's, there's something essential that we have to understand in this passage that the earliest hearers, the original audience, would have known that, that sort of gets lost in translation by the time it gets to us. This is actually a story about a revolution. A revolution, the longing for revolution, and, and this new revolutionary leader. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain how that's the case in a moment, but here's the flow. First, the new revolution Second, the new revolutionary leader. And then third, the new revolutionary lifestyle. So let's pick it up in verse 30 with the new revolution. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. 
And so the disciples earlier in the chapter, they, they had been sent out to do ministry on their own. They've been released by Jesus to do all these great and incredible things. And they're incredibly fruitful, but now they are utterly exhausted when they come back to Jesus. And so they, they've gathered around Jesus and Jesus is, is taking them out on a sort of retreat to get them away from these massive crowds that have been following them. He's literally saying, come with me and I will give you rest. The problem is in verse 33, we read that many who saw them leaving recognized them and then ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So what they do is they get in a boat and they go across the sea and they go to a, a desolate place. Literally, they go out into the wilderness and into the hills, into a region of, of Galilee where there are no really large villages anywhere around them. And this enormous crowd comes and gathers. Now, in this day and age, nobody, nobody goes out to the hills like this except really for one reason. Like there's, there's no reason for a large gathering of people out in the wilderness like this. But the people that would gather out there were the revolutionaries, really the, the freedom fighters. This is where the, the Jewish zealot movement started. They would go out in these hills and they would plot how they were going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so you can imagine this is where the, the guerrilla warfare soldiers are, are going and plotting their revolutions. This is the thing that gets lost in the, in the translation from context to here. Because think about it, Jesus is wildly popular in this moment. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's healing every sort of disease and sickness. And so there's thousands of people following him everywhere he goes. It's interesting, the parallel passage to this one in John 6, John says that the crowd had gathered because the men came to make him king by force. So this crowd exists because they want to make Jesus their king by force. The gathering exists because they want a, a political military leader to liberate them from Roman oppression, to kill their enemies, to lead them to glory. This is what they want and they're willing to fight for it. You know, it says in our passage that there were 5,000 men. And for the most part, when that happens in the Bibles, it's describing heads of households. So they, you can sort of assume there might be fifteen or 20,000 total people. But most of the commentators suggest that this is actually just 5,000 men. It's just the men that have come out here in the wilderness to make Jesus king. You know, the crowds are looking to Jesus as, as, as the sort of a beginning of a new sort of exodus. If you remember in the Exodus story, the Israelites are under heavy oppression in Egypt. They're being forced to, to make bricks and they have these, these oppressive slave masters over them. And then God raises up a leader, Moses, from out of the wilderness and sends him in to say, let my people go. And it really is a, is a violent movement out of Egypt through the wilderness and finally into the promised land. And so in the minds of the Israelites, the Roman Empire is the new Egypt. Israel's not enslaved in the same way, but they are under the control of the Romans. They're, they're occupied territory. The promised land is not free. They're under the rule of wicked Gentiles. And so you can see how this Jesus comes along. And they think, here is our shot. This is our man. Now, on top of all of that, the passage that comes immediately before ours, we didn't have enough time to work it into our, our sermon series, but Mark 6, 14 to 29, Herod, who's, who's the Roman appointed leader, 
he divorces his wife and then he marries his brother's wife. Takes, takes this woman for himself as wife. And so John the Baptist, the great prophet, he, he calls him out. He sort of publicly, you know, rebukes him for doing this. So now Herod's new wife is, is you know, this is like a celebrity scandal in that day. And she's extremely upset that John the Baptist has done this. And so she orders for him to be put in prison. And then Herod throws this birthday party in his palace uh, where people are, are gathered around and they're eating and drinking. Uh, and, and the text kind of suggests that this was a rowdy party. And then his new wife's daughter comes in uh, and dances for him and the men. Uh, again, the text is suggesting this is not like, you know, cheer team kind of dance. This is the other kind of dance. Literally, it's, it's like an R-rated scene for Herod and his friends. And what he does is he promises this young woman anything she wants up to half of his kingdom. Might be a little drunk, but that's what he promises in that moment. You can ask me for anything up to half my kingdom. Now, with, with her own mother in her ear, she says, give me the head of John the Baptist right now. And so because he's made this oath in front of all the people, Herod sends his soldiers. They take John the Baptist in prison and they kill him, cutting off his head. And they literally bring the head back to the party to celebrate. Now, I know you're thinking, why didn't we spend the whole week on that? That's fantastic. But it's gruesome. It's gritty. The New Testament is, I mean, there are stories like this. It's not just the Old Testament. But here's the simple point. Israel is under the leadership of a horrible king. I mean, they're, they're having to submit to a Roman empire that is violent, that is perverted. I mean, it is, it is just the worst kind of rule you can imagine. And so now it begins to make sense that if this kind of empire would operate in this way and they would kill John the Baptist and, and, and do it in this graphic way, surely we need some kind of freedom. We need a liberator. We need someone to come along and set us free and restore Israel to its glory. They're burning with anger. They're desperate for deliverance. And they gather to make Jesus king by force. Now, the second thing is this revolutionary leader. Who is this new revolutionary leader? Because in fact, Jesus is, is recognizing that they're coming to him to make him king by force, to start a new revolution. And it's as if he's saying, you will get a new revolution, but it's not the one you expect. Now it says, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is one of the most important verses in the passage. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. Now that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, it's a reference to a prayer from Moses in Numbers 27 at the very end of Moses' life when he knows he's about to die he prays that God would raise up a new leader for Israel so that they would not be left as sheep without a shepherd. And what he's describing and what he's asking God for is a, a very real human kind of political military leader. And so Jesus looks on this crowd and, and Moses' prayer is fulfilled. The people have been sheep without a shepherd for hundreds of years. They've been longing for this warrior king and he's here but again, it's not what they think. So what does Jesus do when these people are surrounding him? It says that he sat down and began to teach. 
So they're here for this revolution. They're here maybe even bringing, you know, weapons and, and ready for the, the new strategy to go back into Jerusalem by force. And Jesus sits down and he teaches. I imagine that what he was teaching was probably similar to what he taught on the Sermon on the Mount because it's not recorded in Mark and it's true to all of his other teaching. And so you can imagine these men on the hillside ready for war. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who who persecute you. Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, love your enemies. All sorts of things that were just flipping all of their expectations upside down. Don't murder, but not only that, don't even harbor anger in your own heart. Jesus is taking all of their violent energy, all of their angst, and he speaks directly into the heart of it. See, in most revolutions, the tradition was the crowd to gather and, and the leader to, to give out weapons and do training and talk through this strategy to, to say, give your life to me and I'm going to set you free. I'm going to give you power and glory. Jesus is essentially doing the opposite. He's saying, I've come to give my life away. I've come so that the power that you have, you will give away as well. The glory will not be yours, but it'll be the Father's. It's not about getting power. It's about giving it. It's not about becoming great. It's about becoming a servant. It's not about conquering the world. It's about submitting to a cross. And so Jesus isn't here for the type of revolution that they wanted. He's here to give them rest. The same kind of rest that he's giving his disciples. The thing that they need more than a warrior leader is a good shepherd. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, in this passage, it it explicitly says that Jesus leads them out into green grass and they sit down. He leads them to a safe place. And then when they find themselves in want, I mean, they've been out here all day with no food, he provides for them. Now, it says the disciples came to him, verse 36, They said, send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I just love the dialogue here. Jesus answers, you give them something to eat. So it's an impossible task, and that's the point. He's gathering his leaders, and he actually is training his disciples in this moment. And so he asks, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. It says, when they found out, they said, five and two loaves of fish. What I think Jesus is doing here is is showing what kind of leaders they're going to have to be in this new revolution. If Jesus is the good shepherd leading this new revolution, who are they going to have to be? In short, they're going to have to trust him completely. They say, "We, we only have a few small pieces of bread. And Jesus says, take what you have. They say, it'll, it'll never be enough. And Jesus says, I'll make it enough. I mean, it's not until the disciples actually go out into the crowd that Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. They have to actually go out with these few little things on faith, and then it happens. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Now, John's gospel tells us, this, tells us that this happens during the Passover, this, this celebrative feast of, of multiple weeks that happens in spring. 
And so Jesus is, is doing something here in the Passover. He's demonstrating something. He's actually aligned this whole scenario to put the disciples in this position of need, to, to put the crowd in a place of need. The image of the Passover meal, it's to commemorate the exodus, freedom from oppression. It is a new sort of exodus after all. It's interesting that the men sit down in groups of 50 and 100, which is a a standard sort of military practice for taking orders. But instead of giving out weapons, Jesus gives out bread. Just symbol of life. We see it throughout the scriptures on the night of the Passover, when God led Israel out of Egypt, they had unleavened bread. They ate with their their shoes on because they knew they were about to be set free and, and released to go. And then in the wilderness, God gives Israel bread from heaven called manna. Jesus arrives and he says, I am the bread of life. And at the last supper, we see Jesus do something almost identical to this passage. When he had given thanks, he took the bread, broke it and gave it to his disciples. But he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I think it's really important that this miracle happens not for the crowd, but for the disciples. It seems like the crowd doesn't even really know that this incredible miracle has taken place, but only the disciples know as they go and begin to hand out the bread that it's being multiplied and multiplied. Jesus isn't putting on some kind of show with this miracle, but he's teaching the disciples. He's showing them something of his own heart something of of the plan of God, something of the type of leaders that they would need to be in his new kingdom. And so what is Jesus teaching his disciples? That's the third thing, the new revolutionary lifestyle. What kind of life is he calling us to? And I I think we can see this just from the book of Mark. So I wanna share four things in closing. I know four is a lot. Again, I didn't preach the last two weeks. At one point, this sermon was like 75 minutes. I'm bringing it home, don't worry. Here's the first thing, this this revolutionary lifestyle. What is Jesus calling us to? The first thing is a radical kingdom-mindedness. A a kingdom-mindedness. Jesus was constantly preaching and, and teaching on the kingdom. He's constantly talking about the kingdom of his father, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. It seems like all of his teaching is is talking about the kingdom. As Mark said a couple of weeks ago, it's like he keeps coming back to the seed too, you know? He's like, have you heard the one about the seed? Well, let me tell it a different way. Everything is about the kingdom for Jesus. He's calling us to, to pattern our lives after him, to, to live in the kingdom as Jesus lived, to be his disciples, his followers, even now, just as they were in that day. What does it look like to, to reorient our life around the kingdom of Jesus. We might think about how we use our time. What does it look like for us to to live intentionally for Christ and his kingdom within the limits of time that God has given us? Living for the kingdom of God makes demands even on on our money. What do our debit card statements say about our priorities? Jesus, and later in Mark, and we'll get into it, he begins a, a section of teaching where he's just constantly talking about money and possessions. But it's not demanding. It's not coming from guilt. Instead, it's an invitation to not live according to the ways of the world. You don't have to get caught up in all of that. Jesus is saying you don't need to have everything, but instead center your life on me and it will be enough. And so a radical kingdom-mindedness, but the second thing, since we're making up words, 
is a, an others-centeredness. So if kingdom-mindedness is like 15 letters, others-centeredness is something like that too. What does it mean to be others-centered in our life? The test of becoming like Christ, it's not really our, our private prayers. It's not really our biblical knowledge, but instead it's how we treat other people. There's an old book that I love called Humility by, by a South African author, uh, Andrew Murray. And he says, the true test of humility, you can't really test your humility before God. You can only test your humility before others. The true test of being kingdom-minded is being others-centered. Jesus, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. And so the practical stuff of this whole grand new revolution is actually just serving one another. The other day, Jesse and I were looking at this coffee table book about refugees. And in the intro, the three authors were talking about why they decided to make this book. And it's, it's, a, great, it's a great book. But basically, these three people saw a need with you know, refugees having to leave their countries. And so they decided to do a social media campaign. So they gathered all this energy online. They did, you know, a Kickstarter or whatever, raised a bunch of money. They hired photographers. They created a website. They traveled all over the country taking pictures and they made a book, which is all, it's all good and great. It's millennial energy at its finest. But we looked at this book and we looked at all that, that sort of went into it and the, the grandness of it. And, and, and then we thought about the people who are actually just serving refugees in our own community. Like they're not doing a social media campaign. They're just serving as homework tutors. They, they didn't go and create a website and raise all sorts of money, but they're spending the night at somebody's house with the kids while the, the single mom goes and works a night shift. And I think that distinction is, is important because what we see in the life of Jesus and Mark is, is that it, everything he does is incredibly small. It's incredibly particular, it's local, it's personal, it's, it's one person at a time. It's not the, the revolution that we expect. Instead of doing these huge and grand miracles, Jesus is just healing somebody's hand or restoring their sight or giving them something to eat. He often tells them, don't tell anyone, just keep this between us. It's incredibly personal, incredibly intentional. That's the other-centeredness. The third thing is a, a total dependence on the Lord. Remember, Jesus orchestrated this whole event. He drew the disciples into this impossible situation. I mean, it's, you know, what do they say in Sandlot? Like it's a real pickle. Like he's got the disciples in a real pickle. Like go and feed the crowd. Here's five loaves of bread. It's not a sustainable ministry model unless you're Jesus. Like the only way out is a miracle. And so he's, he's inviting them into a life of, of complete, total dependence on him. Remember, they came out here to find rest. They've been working tirelessly. A, a rowdy crowd has gathered there to meet him. Jesus often leads us to places that we had no intention of going to. He takes us to places we don't want to go. And following Jesus is not a recipe for a comfortable and pain-free life. I've had things broken in me that I didn't know existed. That's from Rocky. By the way, that was in the last movie. But it resonates deeply. Following Jesus is not the way to a comfortable, pain-free life. 
And yet Jesus has not forgotten about them. He has, in fact, led them to green pasture. He feeds them. He gives them rest. In the same way, how does he relate to us? See, we are not sheep without a shepherd. We we are not having to to come and and bring our weapons and our our means of warfare and, and be ready to defend ourselves and fight for ourselves. Instead of handing us a sword, Jesus gives us something to eat. He invites us to sit down and to, to rest. In a sense, we're, we're a type of a, a military unit battling these, these cosmic forces. And, and some people who are more drawn to only the rest of Jesus do need to hear like we are in a spiritual battle, while others who are ready to fight need to hear, hey, this battle is also about rest. It's also about laying the weapons down. We put on armor to defend ourselves, and yet we don't go and fight. That's what Jesus does. Now, the fourth and final thing is a, a, a persistent and an and enduring, countercultural, whatever other adjectives I can't think of, hopefulness. An incredible hopefulness. That's, that's the future-looking type of faith. It's looking forward, and that's exactly what this passage is doing. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's giving them a meal that points far beyond itself. This meal, he gives them bread, he gives them fish, but he knows that they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. That's why he reminds them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. If you take from me, you will never hunger again. You will never thirst again. And there's a scholar, N.T. Wright, that, that says this about the passage. What we are seeing here is a sign of new creation. Something was going on there in Jesus' public career, which was unleashing an explosive force into the world. But it wasn't the manipulation of the natural world to suit his own needs. It was the power of a totally obedient life, a life given up to the kingdom of God, to God's sovereign and saving rule, breaking in at last to a world for so long under enemy occupation. God's kingdom is not only a matter of power, but also of overflowing love. Now, Jesus' miracles, you remember this from Cam's message last week. It's not a break from the natural order. It's not not reorienting what's what's natural and, and breaking from it. Instead, it's restoring what's natural. Miracles are not a disruption of of what's right and and should be there. It's a restoration of what's right and should be there. Miracles are the most natural thing that can happen in a broken world. Just for a moment, things are made the way they're supposed to be. There's not supposed to be hunger. There's not supposed to be all this pent-up anger and angst. There's not supposed to be this constant longing, this, this desperation Jesus is, in fact, the new Moses, one who will lead his people out of oppression. He is the good shepherd, the one who lays his life down for the sheep. He is the miracle worker who unleashes into our world a new creation. And one day, just as Jesus was raised, all creation will be made new, will be raised to new life in the same way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be raised. And the feeding of the 5,000, like so many other events in Jesus' life, it's a glimpse 
of that future. It's a glimpse of the new creation of life as it should be and as it will one day be. Heaven and earth joined as one, all things made new, all sickness and pain and death and hunger no more. The longing for a revolution, for freedom, for liberation, it'll give way to just peace, wholeness, completeness, and all satisfying everyday kind of life with God. And so Jesus is our our revolutionary. He is our long-awaited hero, but he's also our good shepherd. He leads the flock. He says, come to me, I will give you rest. The freedom you're looking for, the liberation you're dying for, even beneath that is a longing that only I can satisfy. And so look to him, our good shepherd. Let's pray.